Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the Philosophy Department at King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about medieval aesthetics with Andreas Speer, who is the director of the Thomas Institute at the University of Cologne. Hi, Andreas. Hi, Peter. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me. Well, we're going to be talking about medieval aesthetics, and that immediately raises a problem because the medievals don't actually recognize aesthetics as a branch of philosophy alongside physics, ethics, metaphysics, etc. And that raises the question of where we should be looking for their ideas about aesthetics, if anywhere. Yeah. In general, this is not such an exception because there are other branches um, like, let's say, anthropology, or if we talk about philosophy of mind, where we have also this kind of modern division of philosophy into branches, um, and what we find um, in the divisiones philosophiae um, at this time. Uh, but it's, it's, there's a special case with aesthetics, um, because um, maybe this field is much more designed from a 19th century perspective. And, um, and even um, in the treatment um, of uh, medieval aesthetics, if you go to some classics like um, Echo's book or Asunto's book on, on medieval aesthetics, they seem to take over uncritically the definition of Hegel's Vorlesung um, über uh, die Ästhetik that the subject of aesthetics is nothing but fine arts. So we are really bound to it. But what shall we do? So my suggestion is, and um, what I did is, that we, that we take a hermeneutical point of view. And that means that we start with the way how people experience this, what we call medieval art, because the perception is also the creation of the object, as we know. And um, let's start, for example, with our contemporary uh, point of view and the reflections about it. But um, take the very same view and um, look how people at the time we call the Middle Ages are reflecting upon those works, the very same maybe, we consider as art Objects. So I call this the reconstructive hermeneutics of the experience of medieval art. So your idea is if we put it in an art museum today and it was produced in the Middle Ages, then medieval aesthetics could be the study of what the medievals said about those things, maybe statues, uh, architecture, in, stuff like that. Indeed. And then we will find very, very interesting context. They are totally different from the theoretical context we um, take into consideration when we talk about those objects. Yeah, for example, um, we can, uh, if, we, if we go here in Cologne, we are in Cologne, if you go into the Museum Schnüttgen, which is one of the most famous museums of medieval art, and if we uh, ask where we find them in a medieval period, we find them, for example, in liturgical context, in churches. 
So they are situated in a very different context, and this context also has its interpretation, so its, its interpretive tools, and um, we can find then also reflections upon those objects in relation to the context where we can find them. I guess the same thing would be true for ancient art, actually, because, yes. I mean, the yeah. statues that yeah. we put up in our museums, they stood in temples and they were yeah. religious objects, Yes. right? Yes. And does that mean that if we're looking for remarks about aesthetics in the medieval period, we actually have to turn to liturgical literature or theology? For example, uh, this is one of the most prominent um, fields where we can uh, find those reflections. And this is uh, even confirmed by um, the text you find usually in compendia on uh, medieval aesthetical writings. And there they are mostly presented outside a context, so just as quotes, and you don't know where the quotes are from, and um, uh, what is the context, what is even the genus of the text. Let's start with one prominent example, um, and that is um, the writings of Abbe Suger and the Abbey of Saint-Denis, which is often taken as the model, the first model of a, of a, of a Gothic cathedral. Those writings, um, and this is what we discovered when we started um, the, the research and even doing then the critical edition um, on those texts, the, uh, the most important text is structured according the consecration ritus of a church. So, which is very interesting because first you see how the, uh, the reflection on this art took place. Then also you get an idea of what medieval art in such a context is. This is much more performative than just located in a museum where you can go and watch at it. Yeah, you have to use it. You have to be part of it. This is also when, when, we, when we think from a contemporary theory of aesthetics, a very interesting starting point and point of com comparison instead of taking it um, in a kind of objective schema of um, what we call the history of the fine arts. Right, because they're not thinking of it primarily as an art object, yes. thinking of it as a ritual object. But I suppose actually, in a way, we might think there's something right about that, okay. so that we could even think about something like a painting that hangs in a museum yes. as something that exists within a context that we interact with in a certain way. Yes, and we can see it um, um, uh, in, in those writings that what's taking place is that indeed we find ways that people at this time, they consider special objects, special parts of art, uh, examples of artwork, separate from the day-to-day -day things they were doing. So there is this kind um, of difference we can, we, can, we can also see. But it, those differences are conceptualized uh, in a different way than just uh, the definition of, oh, that's fine arts. Because um, you don't find, it is interesting, you don't find a notion like Ars Pulchra. The idea we, we get from the 19th century, and especially from this very powerful Hegelian uh, tradition, that we find the, speci uh, the specific object of aesthetics at the intersection of art and beauty, 
this is um, not this overall idea uh, which pulls together our understanding on what we find when we are considering what, what the understanding of aesthetics or an aesthetic object is in a, a specific time. It's even not the case nowadays. So to a certain extent, um, uh, this hermeneutical point of view on medieval art um, opens also um, a new uh, or is connected deeply connected with contemporary reflections upon what art is, which is not always fine art. So this, this opening of the, of the understanding with respect to object and theory, what we find in contemporary aesthetic theory, I think we have to take this point of view if we uh, would like to understand what in, in the medieval period is considered an aesthetic object, for example. Actually, I guess that a lot of the previous literature, so you mentioned Umberto Eco's book mm -hmm. on medieval aesthetics, for example, a lot of this literature does focus on the concept of beauty. So what would you say if he or someone mm -hmm. else came and said to you, well, no, hang on a second, we can think about medieval aesthetics as a kind of unified topic, mm -hmm. and the topic is the philosophical reflection on beauty. Yeah. Isn't that a legitimate undertaking? It has some difficulties as well, because you have to consider where you find even the reflections on beauty. If we, for example, take Thomas Aquinas, who is always seen as one of the heroes in this business, as an example. <laughs> as um, in so many other yes, businesses. Yes, as in many, in many others. There is this in, in particular one place which is very prominent, and this is Trinitarian theology. So... If you, if you really look, locate, relocate the places, the reflections on beauty, one very prominent place is Trinitarian theology. Beauty as one of those appropriated names by which the relation between the father and the son is expressed. We have then in connection with this another place that is the tradition of the divine names in the Dionysian tradition, uh, where the beauty shows up as one of the co-expressions of the good, Bonum et pulsum. Beauty is one of the expressions how to understand the uh, efficacy of, of, of goodness, like the light, like love, and so on. So this is one very prominent place. Uh, maybe those are the, the, the two most prominent places, and even what we call them the transcendental beauty is located in the divine name discourse in connection with what we call then the transcendental thought but there the beauty hardly appears as a transcendental of its own so this is a this is a much weaker place the reflections on the beauty and it is not connected with reflecting um, um, for example a specific expression of doing art if we are interested in this then we have um, really to go into the different subject of writings where the reflections on how to produce certain kind of artworks and make them perfect. So, for example, the Schedula di Vasarum Artium of uh, the so-called Theophilus Presbyter, who as an author is not really well known and present. Maybe this is an author fiction, but we don't know it. But then we are talking about art. Maybe in addition to when we talk about the beauty, indeed there is um, maybe um, another tradition we, which we can relate uh, to the Victorines and maybe to Bonaventure. But this is then a follow-up on what I said about the context of the beauty, because it's this neoplatonic idea that you have the well-ordered 
Kosmos. This is more a cosmological than an aesthetic approach. Yeah, we have this well-ordered cosmos and um, all the, the stages of the, of the cosmos as expressions of this well-orderedness, which is then in the Platonic tradition expressed in this very famous um, notion of the kalokagatia. That means that the goodness and the beauty go together and form this kind of harmonious cosmic order. But this is a very speculative notion and is um, hardly addressed to a concrete theory of an art object or an artwork. Yeah, in fact, it almost seems diametrically opposed to that because according to this theory of the transcendentals, everything that is yes. is good, yes. beautiful, true, Indeed. and whatever. Indeed. So you have all these transcendental features. Yeah. And in that sense, you know, a stone lying in a field yeah. Yeah. is as much an example of beauty as a statue in, or a cathedral. Indeed. And this is, this is a, good, uh, a good point because in this respect, the beauty is not discretive yeah, like in Hegel, because this is the first time maybe in the early uh, Renaissance where um, uh, even the name fine arts is, is coming up and where this is taken to single out a certain group of artwork from the very general understanding of art, because until the 12th century, everything was art, which was produced by by man. Yeah, so this techne on and fuse on opposition, what is natural and what is technical and the, or artwork in the very wide sense. Um, this distinction yeah, coming up from Plato and um, in this respect, art is not a very specific notion. It even until the appearance of Aristotle covered uh, all doctrinal and scientific approach as well as the more technical and day-to-day -day labor and, and crafts work what, what, what one does. Do they even then have the notion in the medieval period of an artist in our sense? I mean, so you, what you were just saying mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. there's this idea of art as techne, but mm -hmm. of course that yeah. covers yeah. carpenters and shoemakers yes. and so on. Yes. In fact, those are the classic yes. examples. Yes. So would they have a distinct concept that they would apply, for example, to a sculptor or a painter? Mm -hmm. I think we have to make a distinction until Aristotle um, appears on the scene. Until the 12th century, the concept of an artist is very wide. Even philosophy is uh, taken as uh, art of arts, as ars artium. So when we, when we take the, 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 the famous division of the arts uh, in Duke of St. Victor's Didascalicon, one of the most prominent scholarly texts and even didactical texts in the 12th century, ours covers everything. Um, and then, which is interesting in, 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 in Hugo of St. Victor is that he even incorporates the mechanical arts among the philosophical arts. So we, we have then the, 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 the traditional uh, division to the theoretical and the practical arts and, and, the lo and into logic. But also then he talks about the mechanical arts as part of this. This is interesting. But the concept of the artist um, is, a, is, a, is a very general one. It is in, opposed to the creator and is also a discourse on creativity. Yeah? But a very general discourse on, on creativity. What is, it, what is the divine artifacts and what is the human artifacts? So the divine artifacts, which is infinite creativity, not depending from any 
context and 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 uh, uh, conditions material conditions whatsoever and what is the human artist doing so this famous dictum of ars imitato naturam that the arts imitates the nature also defines um, the constraints of a human of the human creativity which has to respect the given conditions so this is very prominent and um, this concerns the entire human creativity. With, with Aristotle, we get this clear distinction between art and scientia, art and science. And here, this is the starting point in the early Renaissance, where you uh, start to think about the specific um, value even of different arts. That then, then This is then when architecture, painting, sculpturing were singled out, and you find it for the first time in the Campanile of the Duomo in, in, uh, in, in Firenze, uh, represented in a, in a visual iconic form, and, and you can find it in the, in the famous museum. Yeah, I think by Giotto. Giotto made these this, this three plates where he singled out and added to, because they, weren't, uh, they didn't have a very prominent place in, in former times. For example, in, the, in this famous Didascalicon, architecture is uh, just summarized under the armatura. Also, architecture is seen as part of armory. Mm -hmm. yeah? Also, it's not even so prominent that it has a place of its own. Mm -hmm. yeah? It's a part of, of, of armory in the very, in the very broad sense. It's as if he sense. didn't know where else to put it or something. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but here you can see that the, that the reflection on art and craft are then starting to focus a kind of a canon of its own. I think the, the Aristotelian context helped a lot to find the, the, the proper theoretical place of what art does. I guess also in Bonaventure, yeah. uh, so in the reduction of the arts yes. to theology, yeah. he, drawing on Hugh of St. Victor, yeah. he Indeed. also describes the mechanical arts yeah. as a kind of reflection of yeah. divine creativity. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because it, in a way, it suggests a very kind of exalted mm -hmm. role for even the, the humble artist, even the mm -hmm. shoemaker, mm -hmm. is in a way doing something that's a reflection or image mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. God's creative mm -hmm. activity. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it seems that one difference between Renaissance art and mm -hmm. medieval art mm -hmm. is that with Renaissance art, it really makes a big difference who the individual artist is. So if you think about maybe like uh, Giotto, mm -hmm. yeah. right, there's the sort of hand of the artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least nowadays, we think it's very important that it's Giotto who painted this painting. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's an expression of his individuality. Mm -hmm. And I guess that that's not so true in medieval art. Is that yeah. right? Mm -hmm. The first is uh, the lack of sources we have, but we also find sources and reflections on individuality, mainly that, for example, the craftsmen who did the stonework, so they had their individual signs hmm. on the stone they made, for example. There are signs of individuality. So but they would literally put an insignia yes, on, like, yes, I, I yes, made this. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 We have also expressions where, um, uh, in, in, in fact, um, we have to make uh, at least starting from the Latin, the difference between the architectus and the magister operis. The architectus is mainly a speculative figure, just uh, the one who um, was in charge, uh, like the bishop, the abbot, and so on. And, and the true architect, the one who is really leading um, the staff 
this is the, the Magister Operis. And some of those, uh, you find them at, the, at, the, at least then in the 12th, 13th century, you find also plates where they have some inscriptions, where, where, you, where you find some signs of this individuality. In general, indeed, the idea of um, a workspace, maybe take a, take a cathedral workspace, and the most times they were working in the very same way and uh, self-understanding until today. So they are just part of this um, over-century going building campaign, which is to a certain extent um, not bound to the individual, but to the group and to this tradition you are inscribing yourself. A little bit in the habit a commentator has whose originality is only showing up in connection with the tradition he oh, is right. entering. Actually, uh, something yeah. I've talked about in a lot of episodes is the fact that there are these anonymous commentaries on Aristotle and other texts, yeah. and the anonymous artists who work on the cathedrals are almost yeah. like the yeah. same yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and, and indeed, there is a, there is a sign of, um, uh, there's a change of Seb's perception, because so... Um, uh, cutting off this tradition. I think this is something what belongs very much to the self-definition self of the Renaissance. This is the, the Renaissance as a, as a conceptual uh, framework. So think of Petrarch and those who initiated this and invented the Middle Ages because the Middle Ages <laughs> are an invention. Yeah? Um, and nobody in the Middle Ages thought ever to think uh, to live in the Middle Ages. They were just living in the continuity with the old ancient tradition yeah. and uh, commenting on this and sticking yeah, and together. Just imagining them saying to each other, boy, I can't wait for the Middle Ages to be over. <laughs> yeah, 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 this is impossible. Yeah? Because it's, it's, it, is an, it is an invention which is, um, has maybe its strongest uh, realization because, you know, the, the institutionally speaking, the universities gained much stronger during the period we normally considered the Renaissance period. So this was, institutionally speaking, um, yeah, the academies, the academies um, were then a kind of an institutional um, alternative of learning. But the strong tradition was the continuation of the medieval tradition yeah, in the, at the universities until the 18th century. Even, even um, the comment, uh, commenting on, on Aristotle and following um, the usual traps and traces of dispute and comment. The break is much harder and maybe this is, um, since this is um, culturally more visual, is much stronger um, in the art world because here indeed we find um, the going back to the ancient uh, uh, models to late antiquity, an open um, break with the way um, um, how, for example, liturgical places were treated, the medieval cathedrals are not done on the on the playing grounds. They, they were always incorporating the uh, predecessor parts. So they are there are the a built continuity, liturgical continuity, often with um, the pre-Christian period. When we when we take for example places like Chartres and Saint Denis, they were all built on pre-Christian grounds, mm -hmm. and they were incorporating um, uh, even those. Uh, sources, those starting points. Even the cathedral in Cologne, we, we find, if you, if you go to the excavations, a Roman house from the first century, 
Oh, yeah? really? As a very, very, very early, very early place. Almost like medieval philosophy being yes. built on Aristotle. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, or think of San Clemente, with, um, where, you, where, where you find an old Roman house and you find a, a Mitras uh, ritual place. And then the, the, the early Christian um, um, churches and, and, and so on. But when it comes to the renovation of St. Peter, that is the most famous counterexample, the old basilica was turned down. Yeah, it was totally erased. Nothing was left. And, 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 and even um, uh, Michelangelo wanted to switch the burial place of St. Peter on aesthetic grounds because it was not due to the original plan of, of, of an ideal of an ideal church. So normally I'm, I'm not so in favor of um, all those epoch and, uh, and split narratives because they are, for example, with respect to philosophy, the power to exclude things. Yeah, so they are the Middle Ages um, were invented a little bit to tell people and read Hegel. He tells so you can forget about it. Don't read those stuff. It's boring. <laughs> yeah, uh, stupid sophistications of scholastic idiots. Yeah, um, but if we're talking about um, um, the art world, we can see that something happened in the period we call the Renaissance, and that the, the way the approach to art and to the self-understanding of art and what art represents changed pretty much in comparison with the medieval time. If I could take you back to something you were talking about mm -hmm. earlier, which is this contrast between the idea of beauty as being yeah. represented in all of creation and the much more specific idea of producing mm -hmm. uh, handmade artwork, mm -hmm. something we would consider to be an artwork. Is there still not a connection in terms of the actual features of the artworks that were produced? Because I think a lot of mm -hmm. people look at, for example, um, Saint-Denis, mm -hmm. and they see Neoplatonic metaphysics turned yeah. into stone, yeah. right? Because there's yeah. this yeah. light, there's yeah. symmetry. Yeah. And, yeah. and is, is there truth to that? Uh, uh, no, I think this is the the, the wrong way to, to see it. It's, it's the same, for example, there is uh, it's also there are articles they try to connect the the theories, the speculations of the school of Chartres to the building of the cathedral of Chartres. I think there is nothing uh, you can you can connect to this. I think this is this Hegelian approach that you need an idea in the beginning. Maybe that the very same person who is in charge of the um, of the building campaign must have this idea, and that um, the concrete art is then the objectivation of this idea in concrete materiality and cultural contextualization. I think this is simply historically not true, because if you, if you do the archaeological groundwork, you see that it goes the way around. It starts from the conditions. And for example, if you uh, consider the text which were used in the, in the, in the working labs and the work uh, surrounding the cathedrals, those are not the speculative text. It's not speculative mathematics. Even now, an architect uses very concrete and practical things. Applied uh, geometry, applied arithmetics. In connection with this, if we, if we find, and I, I like very much um, uh, the hermeneutics of Arthur Danto, who asked what makes an artwork special. That is what he calls the transfiguration of the commonplace. Of the, of the daily things. Indeed, you can find this. Uh, even the medieval people, yeah, they consider differences. 
they, they, they think about uh, those configurations taking place. For example, let's take uh, Saint-Denis. We can see it in the writings of this famous Abitsuja and so far they are really telling. Yeah? They tell us um, the, the ideas of a Benedictine man, monk, for example, yeah? attending day to day the preaching hours in the cathedral, yeah? watching then um, the sunlight uh, passing through. And, and, and even if you, I talked about this uh, already, that, for example, his uh, writing on the consecration of the Abbey Church, so again, the name is telling what he is doing, is describing the consecration of the Abbey according to the uh, structure um, of the liturgy you can find in the Rituale. And you see where, where light appears and what he tries to do. He tries to assemble, and if we know that at this time um, the church was not finished. It was just laid out and parts of them were finished. So he tries to give an imagination of what the church would look like if we follow the passes of the liturgy and follow him through this place that is, so to say, in, in performative art. And um, uh, this is one example that people, um, how, uh, in, in which context, in which context we find even then also the theoretical ideas. They are, they are much more, um, I call it applied theology, taking up uh, reflections they have to, to nail down, to break down, to, to poetry. There is a much closer connection between poetry, for example, and art. Yeah, um, then to speculative philosophy or speculative theology. So this is our this is this is our idea so from the from the 19th 20th century that we need such a kind of speculative um, underpinning. But uh, this is not um, the most proper way where you find uh, the context for what I call the transfiguration of the commonplace in the in the in the Middle Ages. Right. Well, that seems to me to summarize something that's true of medieval philosophy or the medieval world in general, which is that although it doesn't always give us what we're looking for, it gives us things that are very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, um, but this is, a, I think, a typical hermeneutical problem. So I'm uh, fine with this. And then uh, I came uh, um, to meet and to cooperate with a, with a fantastic um, art historian from America, Jan, Jan van der Molen, with whom I did the first uh, research on this, even that we went to Saint-Denis and and, and did the measurement for the first time concrete measurements and you see then that it's not all ideal and planned it was it's a city grown it's grown mm. yeah one upon the other and then um, it is like in nature so there are then uh, asymmetries and 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 disruptions and problems which we can never uh, explain if this was done on a on a on a on a ground zero ideal plan or map but he then told me start and we will look at, uh, at the end, it was a great discovery um, um, for me. If you then follow the object and follow the context, just, I think, those two things. But um, I think for me to understand it, it was also theoretically a kind of an, of an door opener or gate opener for me to uh, look for m more contemporary ideas of art, for example, uh, let's see, in, in the way of, um, of, the, of, of the Objet Trouvé art, yeah, the, uh, the art which, uh, for example, Joseph Beuys, yeah, um, that, you, that you take again the point of view of this very wide concept of art. 
they are not this limited one which is defined they are as fine arts by being part of a canon yeah mm. but um, uh, uh, to break with, with, with those canonical interpretations and understanding of art this this helped a lot uh, to widen the, the horizon where you have to look for um, if you're looking for reflections on medieval aesthetics yeah you have you have um, um, just um, to go to the uh, to the object and keep the classifications open you can you, you can later try to do this but for the first time is just um, broaden your 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 perspective and also your understanding what you are looking for stay uh, and um, be surprised yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and, and this is i think quite an, an, a different um, approach than starting with a with a very clear concept just looking for what you are looking for, you always find then what you are looking for. It's like when you are doing an excavation, if you have a clear understanding, you will always interpret everything what you find in connection with your given, uh, already given and fixed scheme. Right. Okay. Well, good advice uh, to apply in the history of philosophy as well. For now, I'll thank Andreas Speer very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And please join me next time as we continue to look at medieval philosophy, hopefully keeping in mind these broad horizons here on the history of philosophy without any gaps. Mm-hmm.